I'm trying to get psyched up. I hit record, so you're just going to have to... I hit record a long time ago. Oh, you fucking did? Jesus yeah, you got Christ. all this good stuff to choose from. <laughs> yeah. How about I just... Yeah. <laughs> I'll just make a whole montage at the end of just you flipping out, smashing things, <laughs> screaming, uh, popping tums, all that stuff. Um, uh, Let's clap, damn it, all right? One, two, three. All right. This is getting so old hat that clap wasn't even followed by laughter this time. No, yeah, it's uh, it, soon, you know, like I'm starting to like, I'm like, Joe Rogan. And that was actually many episodes ago. Uh, and yeah, we've got the song and all that kind of shit um i'm ryan i mean wait no stop <laughs> damn it i'll have to edit that out i'm uh i'm harland <laughs> no you aren't i'm can i finish <laughs> who are you again apparently i am blaze yes <laughs> we're the doddlers on the doddlers philosophy podcast more like the Doddler's Philosophy Pausecast. Damn it. We, I, I brought you all here tonight to uh, <laughs> just, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to frame it. I've always, I sort of struggle. I want to say, I don't want to say science versus philosophy, but that's kind of an easy kind of, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying kind of thing to say about the topic here. Isn't that but what every night is on the Doddler's philosophy? Mm, sweet, jiggity maple nuts yeah <laughs> um no i i mean yes or whatever uh but this is science and philosophy science or philosophy or as you might say science is philosophy oh yeah i got it <laughs> i just need to interrupt you enough times that you can yell can i finish yeah uh or can i, I i'm gonna be like blaze can i finish so anyway um that's sort of the topic here, and we're I'm feeling super cash tonight. I'm just like, yeah, well, anyway. Uh, Too cash to even finish that word, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
so um so yeah that's kind of the basic overall topic and i've got some things to talk about a little here and there maybe but um i'm also kind of letting this one be a little more loose i think so are you experimenting yeah 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 because you're you know because you're a scientist oh and that's what science does yeah no it's unfortunately it's all too related to the dawdling thing um we're gonna real really dawdle tonight i have a feeling um and yeah dawdling and not extraordinarily prepared sort of prepared but you know uh i kind of want to just come right out and say blaze what is science asking the quote-unquote philosopher what science is to you well i mean i guess who who else would know scientists don't care about definitions of their terms <laughs> all right what was the question what is science science is the attempt to extract precise information from the world through the means of intentional ignoring, setting up situations that isolate variables, attempt to ignore or block out other influences, and then often, parentheses, unparentheses, applying numbers to that, to what was extracted. So it has to do a lot with empiricism, experiment, and mathematizing. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, yeah. It's my turn to do philosophy now. Good luck. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Philosophy? Falafely. Um Shit, what is philosophy? Philosophy is the almost structured thinking about, to an extent, the world, but also very much thinking about ideas. You know, philosophy to me, as a dumb ignoramus quote-unquote scientist is is kind of um you know it's it's focused on on generating uh an understanding or a deep understanding about ideas so that it seems to me that in philosophy the focus is ideas and when it comes to ideas how they pertain uh, within themselves some kind of internal consistency. You know, like, do do the ideas themselves make sense? Um, so it sort of seems very internalized. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. This is fun. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, the first I, obvious distinction that comes out of those two definition attempts 
is that science is outward looking and philosophy is inward looking. Yeah, right. I think so. I think that's when one of the yeah. Right. How can one do either of those things without the other? Mm, well, I mean it's a good question. Because I would say that science uh yeah. Because I mean, how would you work with the ideas, the framework uh, in science without understanding the ideas themselves. But as you said, we ignore things in science. And so there tend that you can kind of say, um, well, you know, ceteris paribus or whatever. You can always just say, well, we'll just kind of hold these constant or it kind of ignore these parts of this whole idea and just kind of work on a, another part of it. Um, you know, uh, you know, simplest examples are usually just physics 101 experiments or whatever. Um, and just sort of just seeing how the world deviates from, you know, world you set up where there's no friction or, you know, like, uh, so that's sort of what I was thinking. You mean physics 101 thought experiments then? If there's no friction? Well, no, because like if there's no friction, you can still like use the math to kind of set up a prediction expectation and see how it might deviate if when you actually take a ball and roll it down a slope of some kind or what you know what I mean you can kind of see what the prediction of how long it would take you know and you can sort of that's sort of where you sort of remove things from the overall picture and and I guess that allows you to explore different parts of systems and ideas um, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking but in, is it not the case that in every laboratory experiment, we experience a non-zero amount of friction? Correct. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But so, you, okay. Are you making a third distinction between thought experiment, laboratory experiment, and mathematical formula? I guess you'll have to tell me what you're thinking when you say the word thought experiment. Uh, words thought experiment. I was just envisioning there's a difference between when the teacher faces the students and grabs his little red ball and rolls it down the little wooden chute he built last week while yelling at his dog in, in the backyard versus turning his back to the students, grabbing his marker, going to the whiteboard, and writing things. On the whiteboard, you can put symbols together and just not write friction in there or write friction equals zero. And that I, that's all I meant in this case by thought experiment, that we're dealing with ideas or whatever, the symbols on the board and not the balls and the wooden shoots in the classroom. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about thought experiments and math equations as being somewhat equivalent or whatever. Because I always thought about ex uh, thought experiments as being somewhat of a bit of a story almost. And math doesn't seem to be as much of a story. Yeah, Math is totally a story. <laughs> it's a story I tell to myself that it's stupid. No. Um, you mean, are you being serious? Are you thinking like, yes, these are stories? I think you know, I think that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not committed to it, but when I when it comes up, I'm like, yeah, that sounds all right. I think I can get behind that, too. I just, I mean, it sounds all right. It doesn't sound great, you know? <laughs> well, okay, so what's the... Uh, 
Einstein is the big thought experiment guy, and he's like, all right, well, imagine you're in an elevator shooting through space or whatever, right? Like That's yeah. what you're thinking of as thought experiments. I guess. But how is... How are those kind of Einsteinian tales significantly different than, all right, well, pretend there's this thing that is pure quantity. It's just this two. And then there's this operation plus, And then there's another two. It's not like I'm not talking about apples and oranges here. It's just these platonic absolutes out there. You know, that's like Einsteinian... Uh, a train that's moving at the speed of light and getting shot by lightning at both ends or what you know ones and twos and threes are as fictional as frictionless planes right um I, I, yeah but the thing that i was thinking about was um when it comes to the stories of trains and elevators and stuff like that those are sort of these much more i guess they're more like thought experience experiments to me then seem like they're more concretized or some something like it seems at least that's what I thought they were was more concrete examples so that someone can imagine themselves in an elevator or they can imagine a train going by or, you know, whatever it is, allowing the ideas to be grounded in something that other people around you might be able to also say they, they understand or whatever. And then the math is a much more ex- abstract, generalized version of what, you know, could be a train or a elevator or whatever. Um, and then that abstract idea then gets applied to various other things like, um, you know, uh, the, the force of gravity in, you know, in, in, at a you know, much larger scale, like, you know, a sun or something like that and its effect on planets whatnot um but we so we promise this was totally organic that we like it's gonna look after the next thing that gets said that we did that this was all scripted because it's so perfect (laughs) but it just happened and now i'm sitting here thinking we are exemplifying to perfection the distinction between science and philosophy in this discussion about thought experiments and I'm going to use, again, uh, episode 8, a Korzybskian phrasing, and talk about extensional or intentional orientations. The scientist has the extensional orientation, which is Ryan tonight, and what I think you're doing in this thought experiment conversation is you're thinking about, well, what are all of the places that I have run into other chimps tokening the term? Thought, here's a thought experiment, then what follows? What have people pointed out and labeled thought experiments? You're taking a survey, you're looking outside, mm-hmm. and what is the extension of the term thought experiments? Here's one, there's one, there's one. The Harlan, the philosopher over here, is trying to see through all of that and distill out the essence. What really is what makes a thought experiment in the most general and abstract sense. And if you try to make that sort of abstract definition, then the you know this particular philosopher-oriented person notices, oh, well, wouldn't that also apply to math? Maybe math is a thought experiment, you know. But, and since that particular idea is not prevalent in Ryan's 
society. He checks his extension matrix, and it's like, math is not part of this. I've never heard math called a thought experiment. Nope. <laughs> you know, and I th- isn't that a good example of the difference between someone who generally uh, goes comes from science or comes from philosophy? I'm going to say, like, half yes. And the reason why is because I'm, I guess I'm pretty ignorant about what the philosophers would say. You know, like, I would say, yeah, okay, I feel like that's sort of a good description of scientists uh, to an extent in terms of just sort of the general dynamic, you know? But I don't know. Is that what philosophers do? I suppose in some ways they probably do. But... You know, philosophers as being these people who, like, are trying to generalize down to the <laughs> essence, which I don't know if that's the right word for it. We're just trying to get to the heart of the matter and then be able to, like, I I don't know. Like, it's funny because I just described that but said, like, that was the math. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, that was the math behind the general theory of relativity. <clears throat> the thought experiment was the concretized, not abstract one uh, example of the elevator and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah. And so that was kind of how I was thinking. And then you could apply these, this mathematical approach to all these things. And then you come around you're like, Hey, I'm doing that to this. You know, like, it's sort of like, well, wait a minute though. Like, isn't the math being done that way? And aren't you just saying, look, I'm just doing it without the math in a way, because you're saying, uh, you know, you're trying to generalize. And that's, I thought, what the math was trying to do about the, some physical problem or whatever. And then you get, like, very specific examples that are trying to communicate that idea. And so I don't know what your definition of thought experiment would be, but then you would say, okay, well, it applies here in this situation where talking about ele- elevators, and it applies here when we talk about math and pluses and equal signs and stuff. So it's interesting that you say that because then there is a... Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's the extensional part is that scientists do the philosophy and the math and they don't know they're doing the philosophy or not, not math. They do the philosophy and the science and they don't realize that when they're doing the philosophy, I I don't know. <laughs> um, the, the philosopher Dan Dennett once said to the scientist, Doug Hofstadter, anything you can do, I can do meta. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's a little bit, I think of what is just happening in this segment of our conversation. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, you de- you definitely do that very, very frequently. Um, <laughs> what I don't like about that move is that it sounds to me like you don't really appreciate what it is that I'm saying, and you just want to blow past and have some general thing, and then you don't need to worry about the gory details because that's messy and you don't like getting your hands dirty. Like, that's kind of what it sounds like to me when you say, when you do those kind of moves. I'm just like, oh, okay, well, then I guess I'll see you in two weeks because you're off gallivanting around <laughs> just saying, this is that and that is this, you know. Ugh. That's another perfectly fine description to me that I think points to one of the differences in general between what people call scientists and what people call philosophers, that scientists would have a tendency to pay more attention to detail and philosophers would have a tendency to pay less attention to detail and more to the generalities. But to me, that seems like that's not something you want to be proud of because I think sci- scientists, there are plenty that can also pay attention to the 
generalities as well. And they also have access to the details. So then it kind of feels like, you know, it's like the whole thing about like someone in a job or whatever. It's like, well, Bob will can do what you do. And he does this other thing and he gets less pay. Why do I need you anymore? It's kind of like, don't write yourself out of the equation, you know, like, so what do you bring to the table? Because I sometimes think that there's plenty of scientists who could probably be quite generalized too. And not only that, I feel like a lot of you philosophers depend on the scientists to have something to talk about. Mm-hmm. But maybe not, because you guys probably, there's no end to what you'll talk about. Um. Well, yeah, okay, so to try to remember all the things I was going to say about that. Number one, I wasn't attempting to put that forth as a token of pride. I'm not asking for a medal for that. It was just descriptive, and you know, we haven't got there but we soon will where i deny the whole premise of this whole thing but so i'm not saying it's something to be proud of but i would also dispute the claim that there are more generalist scientists than there are particular philosophers i think that is the direction that western analytic philosophy has been moving for at least a hundred years toward hyper specialization very intense work on specific problems and logic-mongering things to Kingdom Come, and you'll have an entire issue of a journal devoted to a Target article and 30 complaints about it, and they're all just working on some problem that none of us have ever heard of. And (laughs) So I don't know, I don't like that claim. Well, scientific- I didn't make that claim, but that's okay. Oh. <laughs> well, the, just, de- the details, details. <laughs> exactly. All I had said was that I think that some scientists can also do some generalization. That's all. So that they're, they're It's trivial, capable. then. It's trivial. Of course. <laughs> like, yes. Classic. Uh, we already agree to disagree to agree. Um... Uh, yeah, so that was, um, I'm like, here we go off to the next thing. And I'm like, what is that next thing? Or did you have more thoughts? Actually, that's really what it comes down to. No. Okay. Well, so, but a lot of this, uh, I think stems from, so we, uh, well, we were just trying to work on definitions of science and philosophy. And I think the best we came up with at this to this point um, is, uh, you know, one is more externalized uh, in its view and one is more internal in its view. And I, I think that's a very general thing to say. So maybe what we mean specifically is, are we talking about ideas? Like one is externally f- focused on ideas and their relationship to other things or is it one, you know, and then like that would be science and then philosophy is just interested in the ideas themselves and do they make sense? Or am I wrong about that? What would you say? What's an idea? Oh, fuck you. <laughs> um, an idea is uh, uh, I, well, you're the one who's asking. Like, so are we your... making... Scientist, if you say that they're both interested in ideas, are we making the scientists all <laughs> out idea. to be instrumentalists or something? That they 
aren't interested in the real world. We're just interested in our models thereof and the ideas contained within them. Uh, I don't know. I would say they're just instrumentalists. I think that just they're they're applicationists or something like that. They're they're concerned with kind of the any consistency an idea might have with external things external to it or whatever. Um, so that could be with other ideas, I suppose. But generally, I think in the terms of science, trying to. Uh, well, I mean, they could be with different ideas, too, because that's kind of how a lot of times in math, a lot of syntheses come about uh, as well, uh, using math in science. But um, And I was kind of thinking that the quantum electrodynamics is that way, and that was sort of the big thing that got Freeman Dyson going. He brought together a bunch of ideas mathematically, you know. Uh, and the same thing with, like, Maxwell's equations. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think that this idea is a sort of, it applies to, you know, does this idea work if I take it and and use it, you know? Whereas, I don't know, that was what I was trying to say about the science side. I wouldn't, I, maybe that's instrumentalism to you, I don't, I don't know. But that was kind of just my general view. And that maybe philosophers were asking, what's an idea? So then they care about definitions and they care about the internal operations of the thing, not how it applies, more just what the fuck is it and and why is it and what are they doing and does that make sense to apply it because there's a premise in there that doesn't jive with you know that kind of thing what do do you think that scientists also care about definitions but that these two camps tend to have different styles of definitions that the philosopher's definition is the necessary and sufficient condition aristotelian style give me the properties of this category or whatever. What must something have and what must it lack in order to count? But that scientists are interested in these, if you still use the term, operational definitions about, well, an electron is whatever the thing is that leaves trails in the cloud chambers or comes shooting out of your... Uh, Stern Gerlach apparatus, or you know, it, it. Do you guys like operational definitions? I think so. Speaking for all scientists everywhere, um, I think uh, the whole like necessary and sufficient conditions shit. Science is kind of like always a work in progress, and you're, you know, I think I, you know, in doing some of the prep, trying to do some prep for this fucking thing. I I was reading David Hull's um. Uh, science as a process and that was you know one of the things that he focused on david hull was a philosopher of science um in that book was the idea that a lot of times you know maybe it doesn't make sense to philosophers but a lot of times scientists will kind of get an idea out there even if it doesn't jive if, if there's some problems with it or whatever and they just kind of want to get it out there before they can before even they have their own view on it completely solidified or before they've started to kind of put the furniture in the room the way they like it or whatever. So often there's something that's just kind of out there. Maybe it's backed up by some, you know, uh, laboratory work or whatever. Um, but they're trying to get the ideas out there. And then so things are kind of provisional and then they start to work on them as they go. Uh, that kind of thing. 
What? How, what? Okay, I missed the part where that has to do with definitions. So if you're talking oh, about so the provis- a definition, if it's operational, I guess then it's like, well, the thing that you're saying it is or whatever might change, and so you're like, yeah, yeah, it's probably better to let the language follow the phenomena or whatever than to say, well, we have these, you know, important factors that must be addressed and, you know, check off the boxes and stuff and say, okay, that can be a definition or whatever. Because they don't want to hold fast to anything, I don't think, scientists necessarily. There's all of these big claims coming out, and then you'll say you didn't even claim it. They don't want to hold fast to anything. I That seems unlikely. No, I, what I mean is that they don't want to hold fast to something like a definition, you know, too much is, I think, uh, the idea that I'm trying to convey. That there's a, um, that they're not doing their, like, super-duper homework on how they go about defining things. They're they're going to maybe have some way of defining it, but they're not going to necessarily always going to, you know, they may you may try and hold them to it, but over time they might change the way that they think about it or talk about something. When a group, when a culture, when a, what do you like to call them, when a population makes that move, do you think that they are operating on some sort of institutionalized faith that their conspecifics, their teammates, their colleagues are going to be clever enough to interpret things in the right way. If you're going to play the game where we're relatively comfortable with flexible definitions, they're going to change over time, they're going to be guided by the back-and-forth process between experiment and reality, or whatever this thing, whatever you're examining. How does the person who later engages with your texts know which definition to import when interpreting you? Because every text is going to be consumed subsequent to its creation, even if you're across the room from someone and then you can be across the centuries. It seems to be putting a lot of onus on the interpreters, any system that would be that would countenance highly flexible definitional frameworks. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a kind of a big quote. You want to can you handle it? Can you dig it? Lay it on me. <laughs> it's, a, it's from Science as a Process by David Hall. Quote. Yet another ambiguity constantly crops up in our discussion of scientific theories. Are they hypotheses or facts? Can they be quote-unquote proved? Do scientists have the right to say they quote-unquote know anything? While interviewing scientists engaged in the controversies under investigation, I asked, do you think that science is provisional, that scientists have to be willing to re-examine any view that they hold if necessary? All the scientists whom I interviewed responded affirmatively. Later I asked, could evolutionary theory be false? To this question, I received three answers. Most responded quite promptly that, no, it could not be false. Several opponents of the consensus then current responded that not only could it be false, but also it was false. 
A very few smiled and asked me to clarify my question. Yes, any scientific theory could be false in the abstract, but given the current state of knowledge, the basic axioms of evolutionary theory are likely to continue to stand up to investigation. I'm going to keep going. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Philosophers tend to object to such conceptual plasticity. So do scientists when this plasticity works against them. Otherwise, they do not mind it at all. In fact, they get irritated when some pedant points it out. From the perspective of finished knowledge, systematic ambiguity is a fault to be decried and immediately eliminated. From the perspective of knowledge acquisition as a temporal process being carried on by fallible human beings whose careers have an inevitable temporal limit, it may be an evil, but it is at the very least a necessary evil. In fact, I find that such equivocation in science is not in the least evil, but a powerful method of conceptual improvement. Often, I was forced to conclude that the standards dictated by philosophers of science, if taken literally, would destroy the very mechanisms that produce the characteristics of science that philosophers value so highly. End quote. Cool. That's good. So he is basically saying not having uh, hardened uh, definitions, you know, for instance— for scientists is kind of how that works. It's kind of always a work in progress. And so they have for time, some words and some kind of loose definitions, maybe they're operational, like you were talking about. And there's no like, you know, um, hard and fast criteria that they must follow. Um, He later then goes on and he talks about weasel words and that they serve like an important positive function Feeling that they kind of they they buy time for the scientists while they develop their positions and stuff, and so I think that's kind of what I was trying to relay. I don't know if that helps in the questions that you asked. Do you have an example handy of weasel word? Uh, uh, no, I don't. But okay. uh, I could look in a second and find probably something. That quote sounded relevant to what I was trying to say. Okay. Though doesn't directly address, I guess, what I was hoping was a critique of that strategy. No, it, it was a good description of the strategy. He defends it in the end. Does he? Okay, did, I don't know if I was able to catch it on the fly. Did he have something to say to the person who complains in this kind of semantic flexibility? Or whatever he called it, conceptual something. Conceptual or other. plasticity. Conceptual plasticity, and those probably aren't the same thing, but closely related. If in that situation, it's going to be very difficult to, it seems to me, maintain your train of time binders down through the generations, or even teacher to student, whatever, because. Every audience member it may be hearing a speaker with a flexi, plastic, different definition than the speaker is saying it with. And so there's a, it seems to raise the likelihood of misunderstanding. 
Yeah. Um, and I, in reading this, he does address that particular point as well, but I don't remember um, where in this book he does. I don't need to have him speak for me or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I just remembered that he had that. He did address that. Um, and my thinking was, uh, well, at least I, I'll just still pull from him a little bit. His whole point is that it's it's like it's a selection process. And so there are some individuals who are way more influential than others. And so, and they inherit institutional uh, backup and um, they become quite uh, influential. And so their ideas, however interpreted or not, are, uh, however correctly or, you know, to their satisfaction, they're interpreted or not, they still become these sort of, uh, they they kind of hold sway over that idea I get or the you know the 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 family of ideas or the idea itself or the or the you know whatever it is that scientists are talking about um, could be the iridium layer after the KT you know mass ext- or you know the the KT boundary or whatever the iridium layer there and uh, um. It kind of rolls nicely into some of the things that I kind of have to say about it. Um, but I want to let you kind of keep going on some of the thread you have, because we'll, we can eventually get there. It's not a huge deal. Um, but yeah, that some people, that there is a, it's a selection process. It's not necessarily evolution, but it is like, you know, given the conditions at play and given what you have inherited, you know, if, what you've inherited from like, you know, you're so, you know, an advice, advisee of somebody or, you know, who's influential or you went to a school that is, you know, influential or whatever it is, you know, the likelihood of your ideas and your work getting seen more is possibly greater than somebody who went to a, you know, podunk place or whatever, or some country that's, you know, really kind of poor or, you know, so anyway. Marginalized. Marginalized. Isn't that what we call those that nowadays? Sure. Marginalized. So the idea being that, like, how would people interpret you? I think it's that you say, like, shit has to pass your eyes first, kind of. I'm not saying that correctly. I'll say it better in a little bit, but um, it, you're the, you give it blessing. You know, it's that kind of, I think there is a little bit of that going on. A lot of that, maybe. If we give to philosophy the credit for either being good at or tending to push this kind of thing or whatever, this strategy, epistemic habit, I would like to defend it as a quote-unquote good thing. When you gave your three examples of responses to the question, is it possible that evolutionary theory is false or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. And some people, and I can just hear them doing it, right? <laughs> I can, they're on stage, Richard Dawkins is up there, P- Piliucci is up there, whatever, and they just immediately burst forth with speech. No, it's not possible, that's wrong. <laughs> or, yes, it's already been proven wrong, it's so, oh my God. Versus this third person who wanted to take a second and say, well, that depends on what you mean by evolution. Or, right. It, if that's a more, quote-unquote, philosophical response, 
I think that's a good thing, and scientists would do well to behave that way more often. And that isn't, I don't think, an issue about the ideas themselves or the institutions of science or philosophy, but rather just a discourse habit that will lead to maximizing the chances of agreement and progress anywhere it happens. Uh-huh. That's a, these are big questions, right? You, well, does God exist? No, you're an idiot. Well, it depends on what you mean. <laughs> Whenever big questions and concepts are brought into play in many contexts, it seems like we ought to take a second to clarify before proceeding to respond. Well, okay. Well, the thing, though, there is that I think it, it comes down to what, you know, obviously, you know, the kind of general practices you have. If you're a scientist, you're probably going to have very, you know, some different general practices than a philosopher would. Philosophers love language, you know. Scientists, eh, not so much. I mean, a lot of them are just really bad writers and they talk endlessly about it because I guess it's, you know, philosophy is somewhat still, in academia anyway, still considered part of the humanities, is it not? Um, and so there might be a better focus on language there than there would be in sciences where it's just about being productive in a lab or, you know, mathematically or in the field or whatever it is and trying to kind of, uh, you know, get your um, whatever it is, experimental design, et cetera, working, you know, and to have something to say about the, the output from, you know, whatever that process was that you did some science on. That depends on what you mean by language. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, is math a language? Well, then scientists care about language, just not maybe what we call natural languages. I don't know. Um, are you wait all, a minute, are you really stuff is oversimplified? Yeah, are you are you are you just trying to really exemplify the philosopher tonight? Is that what this is? You're like, ha, I'll question everything. Yes. Anyway, that's fine. I don't care, but I'm just <laughs> noting that. Have you met me? I do this every night, I hope. Mm. You get excited and you're like, yeah, let's ride this wave. Right tonight, you're just like, I'm going to surf against the waves. It doesn't matter. There are no such thing as philosophers. Um, oh, that's right. What where, wh I was thinking when you foreshadowed that you had a place this was going to go, I thought this might have something to do with your deference. It does. Rap. So throw that out there. All right. If you feel it's appropriate. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we now, this rink-a-dink's got, like, three flat tires and, like, a bucket for another wheel. Um, so let's do this. So I was thinking that one of the things that, you know, when these scientists and philosophers get into spats, usually I guess it sounds like, you know, scientists are the ones who are kind of throwing mud or whatever. Uh, there's a famous one that Richard Feynman, the physicists, famous 20th century physicists, uh, said about philosophy of science, and he said the philosophy of science is as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. That gets the cockles up, right? Uh, is that cockles? Is Why? <laughs> you, if I had a gauntlet, his cheek would be stinging. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, 
Neil deGrasse Tyson apparently claimed philosophy is not a productive contributor to our understanding of the natural world. But Stephen Hawking was like, hold my beer. Philosophy is dead and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, um, but obviously these uh, glove slaps or whatever are, uh, you know, they get philosophers quite pissed off. But I don't know if it's, I mean, that th those are disses, I suppose. But a lot of times I wonder how much disrespect it is. You suppose? All right. I know, right? Only the philosopher would be like, that's just egregious. But I was thinking that a lot of the time where this these outbursts or whatever come from, where they come from is, I, I have this word that I want to have be a word. And I, there is a word out there like this site called verbotomy and anyway the word that i want to use is a word called indifference 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 and uh how i would define it is that it's just ignorance to the deference uh deference being yielding out of respect or whatever you want to however you want to define it so i would ignorance to the deference required by others and their cultures um and so, you know, if we would say disrespect, I think it's sort of um, objectionable on the grounds that human interactions can often be much more nuanced. Now, I get it. Social media, they're not very nuanced. But at conferences and things like that, they might be a little bit more nuanced. And a lot of the times, I bet a lot of these people say things towards each other, and they probably are, you know, know each other, not every night do they have dinner together but like they know each other well enough that other people may not understand always the context in which things are said but nonetheless you know it gets blown up or whatever so the idea though is that um i think that like as far as this indifference thing is concerned i think that uh you know because it's sort of ignorance to the deference of others and their cultures I think a lot of the times scientists don't recognize that for philosophers, I think anyway, they're usually deferring to the long history of ideas and discussions that have been done by other philosophers. You know, and I mean, there's the whole phrase is on footnotes to Plato that Whitehead had this notion that there's, they're always deferring to a much greater or longer time period that ideas have come along. And I know that you and I have discussed this and sometimes I have heard you get frustrated that you feel like progress isn't made in philosophy the way it is perhaps say in science. And so there's that little nugget of sort of that, what they, you know, who they're deferring to is the, I guess I would say they defer to the ancients and scientists defer to their elders. You know, the elders in the group are the ones that will give the blessing. Yes, you may, you know, yeah, that definition is fine. Or usually it's just cut and paste. Like you said this here and I'm just going to, whether or not I understand it, I'm going to say that's how I'm defining that term or that idea or whatever. Like my, my old advisor, Mike had to often, um, you know, when he was doing something in an area, like he's a geologist, when he was doing things in a particular area that was not necessarily, or if it was an area that another geologist is kind of like, not claimed, but you know, like they did the important work there and all that. You'd literally have to like send his work 
to for to them to be for them to review and say yes this all jives well go ahead and publish now you know like that kind of thing like so there's an element of that so there's 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 that but there's also this this um like when i worked in uh the medical uh field i guess you could say there was everybody was like you know they put the phd on the back of their name and you know everything the placards had all your educational levels and everything was all about you know sort of this um you know priority based hierarchy not you know scaled hierarchy but you know just like almost a military style kind of like the elders are the ones you got to listen to and before you can do anything you know you got to pass you know whatever the the tests are that they do that in and anyway i know every every academic department has some degree of that even in philosophy but um there is that element that's just really in there and so to me there's this yeah they defer to the elders and sometimes i think that in deferring to your elders and not to your ancients you kind of uh have uh sometimes a kind of shorter length view of things perhaps and uh i don't want to say that scientists when it comes to talking about stuff sometimes reinvent the wheel but i know that that would be very quite irksome to philosophers and i don't have a great example but i do have a kind of a quote that one philosopher of science john s wilkins had about scientific attitude towards even like literature you ready mhm quote Generally, scientists have a rolling wall of fog that trails behind them at various distances for different disciplines, above which only the peaks of the mountains of the greats can be seen. In medical biology, for instance, the wall is about five years behind the present. Little is cited before that, and those works that are, are cited by nearly everyone. So there is a tendency for what Kuhn called textbook history to become the common property of all members of the discipline. End quote. So that idea that there's, yeah, we, it's like, well, I mean, who's, who's uh, in, in evolutionary biology, who is citing, you know, uh, you know, some relatively obscure uh, scientists in the early part of the 20th century, who now is like that work and blah, blah, blah. I mean, they'll likely talk about Darwin, and they might talk about some of the people who are part of the uh, evolutionary synthesis. But in general, a lot of that stuff's going to be, those are the greats. Those are the peaks sticking out of the cloud, you know? Um, and I think that's sort of annoying to philosophers. I think that's a big part is like, you guys have a deference to things uh, that are just, that it's different. Um, anyway, that's, that's as good as I can say it at this moment. I like the rolling wall of fog image a lot. But I feel as though it applies everywhere. It might function a little differently. But I think in philosophy, too, there is that tendency. And it might just be an artifact of chimphood, and it's just going to be that way. That's the way our wetware is set up, that we are going to pay attention to who the others have already paid attention to. And so it might be biological, it might be institutional, but I'd say, I mean, that's the same in philosophy, right? Everyone cites the same stuff. And maybe if you're... But anyway, I also... Well, it doesn't sound like it is. It sounds like to this philosopher, and he makes it sound like it's pretty common. 
to most philosophers that that's their complaint about scientists, that they don't do what philosophers do, which is really scour and devour all of the literature in a way that they then, you know, have a good understanding of it. So I, it sounds to me like it's not what everybody does. At least I'm, and I'm just, I'm ignorant. So, you know, you're saying that's not how it's done. So I'm just like, okay. Maybe we need to add one more variable to this function to make it make sense in that we add what the problematic is and that scientists have a wall of problems and that's where I would say philosophers don't. Philosophers will still talk about Nicomachean ethics or something from Aristotle from 2,500 years ago or whatever. When, and maybe, again, it's all oversimplifying people. We realize this is all bullshit. Okay, but maybe scientists don't do that. The problems that they work on are all problems that have happened within their wall of fog or within the last 10 years or within, they're more contemporary, perhaps. Once you've selected your problem and you're working on it, then I think most people's fog walls work the same way. If you are in your problem, you pay a lot of attention to the most direct texts written about it, and then you you can even like search by keyword and then sort by number of citations or something, and that's going to be probably what you see in your bibliography. They're going to be... More And you could do a betting pool on it or whatever. And it's all just, we give the highest odds to the other article with the most citations before we even turn to our endnotes. And you're probably going to do well if your betting pattern is just pick the favorites. I don't know if that's making sense. Or if this edition is totally ruining it for you. But I think that, and this is part of what I mean by complaining that philosophy doesn't seem to make progress in the same sense that science makes progress. It's in the selection of what your problematic is. Where are you going to invest your energy and what are you going to work on? Philosophers will still be talking about cogito ergo sum and the forms and, you know, all this stuff. And scientists aren't talking about ether anymore. Philosophy doesn't seem to abandon concepts as well as science abandons them. Well, uh, well, and of course, it's always philosophers and historians who dredge those concepts up and throw it in your face and say, why did you forget about this? How is it that your idea that you have now is better than the one that was, you know, supposedly misplaced, but, or displaced, I mean, but it kind of sort of, I have two things to say. Well, on one hand, this David Hull guy and his science is a uh, selection process kind of makes sense because he's talking about, you know, specific generations. And the idea that whatever happened millions of years ago is super important um, to your current situation right now. Um, is kind of not, you know, it's like, what, what do you have right now in terms of your traits? If you're an organism, 
you know, if you are up for being selected, um, and then, you know, obviously how does that match with the conditions that you find yourself in? And something that happened a million years ago isn't necessarily going to be as is, is super important to right now. Uh, it's likely that it's maybe it only goes a few generations back or it only goes so many generations back where this particular trait continues to be uh, relevant or whatever. And so that kind of makes sense in that, you know, we have a deference to our elders because they're the ones who we inherit the, you know, the important traits that are helping us work and live and deal with these conditions now, you know, and that's why maybe scientists, maybe there's an underlying factor there that just is part of just the, the system at play when it comes to something like science. And that philosophers, if they are going to talk about, they're going to continue to talk about Bacon and, uh, you know, Aristotle and, and probably a whole bunch of other people who I don't know, but if they were to mention it to you, you'd be like, yeah, I read that person. Um, you know, they're going to continue to, because they're more focused on that long lineage, you know, the, the, the big story of the whole thing where science is very just like next generation, next generation, you know, kind of thing. And so maybe there is some forgetting, you know, memory loss of that kind of stuff in the past. And so, you know, maybe there's most uh, biology or physics 101 students right now wouldn't know uh, about blending inheritance for biology kids or uh, ether, ether talk for uh, physics 101 students or something. Because they're just literally like, these are the things that are relevant to the science now. Learn them and pass the class. Like, <laughs> we're not going to talk about the ether. Uh, I'm, you know, we're going to do our equations and and you're going to be given a test and you're going to answer that test, you know, with the questions and, and try and get an A. But the second thing I wanted to say was then that also kind of makes me think about like, well, when you were talking about like how, you know, in science, you know, or or maybe it was the philosophers who were who were, you know, still reading up on all this stuff and that I think it was something you said something about uh there's a rolling wall of, was it ideas or, or, or procedures or something like that? I don't problems? Know. Problems. There's a rolling wall of problems and that philosophers don't really have that. Um, and they're, you know, still going back and, and talking about things that maybe in a scientific framework aren't relevant or whatever, like to, you know, the ether or whatever. Um, Are you about to add to that? Yeah. Okay, I want to, before you do, I have to say, let me rephrase it again and add one more thing and put it in different words and make sure that this yeah. is clear. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so, because I, and I didn't get to focus yet on your term, oh. indifference, well. and, you know, give it my style definition. Right. So, when I think about this indifference or deference thing, I just think about the chimpanzee politics or whatever, and that they're one of their deference indicators is like averted gaze, upheld palm in the direction of the subject of the deference, right? And that if you don't do that, if you make your hair stand up and approach someone, that would be indifference, you know? So, but there's nothing extra cultural about those indicators really it's just like these are it only applies within a given system 
that that's what most of the citizens, that's their pattern of interpretation of those signals. It, raised hair means one thing, and diverted gaze and upturned palm means another. It could mean anything, but there are different cultures that have different symbolic patterns that are that express their difference, and only because that's how that society interprets it. So that if we look at quote-unquote philosophy and science as tribes or cultures in that way, that they would have different, more or less arbitrary, difference patterns, and that, as you described aptly, the quote that describes the philosopher's difference pattern is the footnotes to Plato thing, and then the quote that would define the scientific difference pattern I was thinking of the Coonian, I think this is Coon, right? The uh, Proceeds One Funeral at a Time. Oh, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, a boar, I want to say. Oh, it's even before, okay. Yeah, he took it from boar, all right, whatever. But that that would be the scientist's version, or the kind of analogy to the footnotes of Plato. Mm-hmm. It Proceeds One Funeral at a Time. Yeah. And so that these are just two... If we try to be neutral about it in our ethnographic survey, that it's just that this one has a longer temporal window of respect or something, or, you know, deference. And the other one has a shorter window. And then, if you interpret it through that grid, then with that gloss on it, then you could see how those two different cultures tend to proceed and analyze, oh, okay, well, this one's better in on this metric and this one's better at this, and here's what happens when you do this. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it, I think it just takes, I think what I think, we'll listen back later and see if I'm correct, but like I think that just takes what I was saying and kind of gives it a little bit more meat. That was the intent, yeah. If I'm understanding you, that's kind of how I would yeah. attempt to say it. It's uh, f- it wasn't eloquent at this moment, but footnotes and funerals. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So where are you going to go next from there? Well, what I was thinking was that you had said something about like how you know, but still, I was thinking about the ether idea, and I don't remember what the knicker necker something or other by Aristotle. <sighs> oh, the Nicomachean <laughs> something. Yeah. But or whatever, um, that you know, the, it's, it may not the, the equivalent thing might not be relevant to a scientist, other than some bit of curiosity or whatnot. Uh, you know, maybe it's a scientist who enjoys history. Um, but the one thing that made me think about that was, well, in a way, the other part of the science philosophy thing, and I'm not sure if you think this or not. I don't know if I do, but I think it's something that gets brought up enough. We should bring it up here. Is the social component of science, at least. I don't know about philosophy. I think philosophers seem social to me, but um, I don't know of those like papers where like 100 philosophers are on the paper and it's actually like a paper, you know. Can you get 100 philosophers to work on one thing uh, like you can with scientists or whatever? I don't know. Um 
And so I was thinking, well, one of the things that scientists have a tendency to do is kind of, uh, there's quite a bit of, um, like, I guess you could almost say like a organizational structure, almost a little bit of a division of labor style that goes on. And so one of the things that happens is there's a lot of, a lot of scientists, um, really think that there's certain steps that you take as you move along in your career. And of course, each step in order to make it to the next one, you have to be somewhat successful. If you're not successful, you know, it's like a video game. You can't move to the next level. And so uh, there is that idea that, okay, in the beginning you do, you know, work for your advisor and maybe even they really have a, a say on how you go about doing the work. And then maybe there's the next step could be, you know, getting to a point where you have now defended it and you are the expert on it. And all the advisor and the committee ever actually really did was give you a little push, you know, and, you know, and the, and off you went. And if you're successful at that, then you pass and you move on to the next thing, which is, I don't know, postdoc, or if you're lucky, you know, tenure track type position, or you work in a museum or who knows. Um, and then, so you kind of keep moving along as a research scientist or whatever. And then as you keep moving along, you know, you keep advancing your own ideas and, and or improving them and, you know, developing them and all that kind of stuff. You just keep moving it along. And eventually you get to be an old timer. And now you get to not only do things like perhaps say write textbooks or, uh, you know, write big uh, tomes or whatever, but you get to write review articles. Like this is the state of the field today, you know, or maybe, maybe you, you're not at that point, but you're just, you know, trusty, worthy enough, and the editor of whatever the annual review of whatever the topic is, biology or physics, they're like, you know, Jim or Jane or whoever, I think you should be the one to write this review on this general topic. And so then, you know, you get to write that review. And so instead of going as a young researcher, for instance, and collecting all of these references and doing all this work, because one of the other things about science is it's uh, at the very least productive in that there's a shit ton of papers that are constantly being, you know, pumped out on a regular basis. Uh, you can just go and like cite that review article probably, you know, like, and now someone else has done the work that you don't have to do. And now you can just kind of keep moving it forward. So there's not all this extra legwork that has to be done by the scientists. Uh, I don't know if this is the case for philosophers, but if it is where philosophers do have to do a lot of their own legwork and they don't team up with lots of other philosophers and write papers together and all that kind of stuff and agree at the end of the day that they like the product that they're putting out and whatever, um, maybe because they don't have that elder structure, I don't know. But in that sense, they're kind of lone on their own. You know, they're just sort of, I don't want to say lone wolves because they don't, they're not. They don't have that uh, thing. What I would say about scientists is that they're like a wolf pack and they make kills together and they are fairly productive in that they regularly go out there and they make a kill, they eat it, you know, and all that. But every once in a while, there's like, you know, a bear who's sitting around, you know, munching on little bits of that, you know, like grizzly bears or whatever, some, some berries or like, you know, they'll, they'll make a kill from time to time too. They definitely go after the salmon. I wouldn't say, I don't want to know I <laughs> say like low hanging fruit. But they don't make as many kills, you know. And one of the things that they're really good at, because they're big and they're strong and they have, they can, they can be just as menacing, is they can go in and eat 
or you steal a wolf pack's kill, you know? Um, if, especially if they're big enough and they're, you know, whatever. And that's kind of how I sort of view, to an extent, philosophers and scientists. That scientists are just these this wolf pack, and they just go around and they they're just productive. They make kills, and you know they they influence things quite greatly. You know, in the sense that you know, and this is the analogy, of course, but they they influence the distribution of the you know the, of the deer and the elk and all that kind of stuff, which allows to you know makes more room for things to come up, and there's just all this stuff to do. And then grizzly bears, you know, they they sleep a lot and they get up and they kind of mosey on over to whatever it is. But if you got in their way, they would tear you to pieces. You know, they'd be like, what's an idea? And you'd be like, what? I, I wasn't thinking about it. Like, what the fuck? You know, give me all of your necessary and sufficient conditions before we, you know, like, that's kind of how I need a cartoon of a grizzly bear walking up to a pack of wolves being like challenging them on the, those things. And they all just go away. They're just like, God damn it. Fucking bears. I know it's got, got a little cartoonish in the end, but we'll go kill something else. We'll just go kill something else. And maybe that damn bear will eventually stop by again. But you know, it's just sort of their, you know, like an annoyance in the, in the Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Feynman style like that, you know, philosophers, Jesus fucking Christ, just shut up. You know, we, we went out and we killed something. What did you do? You just came and complained to us about how we went and killed it, whether we did a good job or not. That's kind of like how I think of a lot of these, the, the cultures. And I was using the literature thing as another way to kind of talk about that. Do you know, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. And I think to my impression and experience that seems accurate that if you but we could do some science on it and find out it seems to be that more philosophy papers have single authors and more science papers have ensemble authors right sure that would not surprise me that's my experience that's what i would expect i don't know the reason uh, maybe it has something to do with just like having with the experimental procedure because I don't know anything about that. Like, do you need a bunch of people to do the experiments? And since philosophers are just shuffling words around most of the time, one human can do that, so they just do it that way. Yeah, like a lab will automatically be a pack, you know? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, it's just bam. You know? So that'll explain part of it, probably. Part of it, yeah. What about this analogy? Uh, so you got your animals one. <laughs> While you were saying that when I was thinking, yeah, it's more like, or not more, it's philosophers are the singer-songwriters who go to the open mic with their acoustic guitar. <laughs> yes. And they're like, here's my, listen to my, I'm going to pour my heart out to you. And the scientists <laughs> are more like the itinerant jazz musicians like Antoine Baptiste and Treme or whatever. Like they're just, I got my fucking horn in the backseat of the taxi and I'm just going to whatever gig will take me. And I'm like, you guys got to, you, you need a trombone tonight? Okay, I'll be there. And like, you kind of know a lot of the same old standards and then you just get up there and rip it, you know? And the philosophers are carefully crafting their poems and they're going to destroy. And they're like, don't clap along. Don't snap your fingers. I'm do. I'm playing. And they're just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that's it. That sounds good. There's another case. 
singer songwriters. Oh, that, that you add that to the cartoon of the bear, and the wolf pack. You know, I need the wolf. It's a bear up there with a little fedora on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, sounds good to me. When, uh, but okay, and then another thing to you that you just mentioned that wraps into a, a point from earlier is that scientists could get along better without philosophers than philosophers without scientists. There's more philosophy of science than science of philosophy, right? <laughs> right. If you want something trivial. But what about the little mini quote? There is no such thing as philosophy-free science. There's only science whose philosophical baggage is taken on board without examination. Bam! What about that? Dennett got us again. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think I don't think that the scientists could get away with they would always be doing philosophy. There's I mean, I feel like every time there's an introduction, anytime there's a discussion, and you know, basically anytime you're not doing the methods or you know, I suppose the results might be science oriented, but you know, I think one time you made mention of like <laughs> science just What's really important to science is like some data collection, you know, like, um, and in a way, I think that's sort of accurate, even though it's very simple or simplified. I think that's kind of an important thing. Yeah, uh, something that I have said before. So, and we, again, and we're going to get to this where I'm just like, I deny the entire premise. <laughs> but when I, when this kind of question comes up, as it often does, one of the tongue-in-cheek ways that I've attempted to answer it is basically, yeah, well, the science you're doing science when you're collecting data, and then everything else is philosophy. As soon as you... You're doing science when you're setting up the experiment physically, when you're slowly taking your little dropper and putting two drops of this chemical in this other one, and then you're taking a reading on your, okay, what number, what uh, little hash mark is this reached on my apparatus? And you write down the numbers. And you, that's, you're doing science when you do that. As soon as you go sit down and start saying what any of those numbers mean or refer to, well, then you're just doing metaphysics, and metaphysics is philosophy. You, as soon as you tell me what your experiment has proven or what you were dealing with, as soon as you interpret your symbols, now that's philosophy. I'm sure that makes many people, would make some irate, and maybe there's reasons why it's a stupid idea, but Ryan apparently won't tell me why. Well, and... It's a stupid idea just because of your face. No. Because <laughs> your face is That's stupid. why we're on the radio. <laughs> I don't need a face. No. Um, I don't know why. I don't. Well, how? I, let's quickly break it down in like what a scientific paper looks like uh, in its very generalized form. Probably, you know, undergraduate level form. You got an introduction, and that introduction essentially talks about 
the overall context, the things that had happened have come before, um, and just sort of the sort of the problems that remain. And then um, you would maybe then have a, you know, and the problems that remain would, you know, you'd be setting up like, and this is what we, this is the thing we addressed. And then the methods section, for instance, would be saying, this is how we addressed it. And then the results section would say, after we did the, you know, we tried to address the problem in whatever our design was for, under, you know, addressing it. Um, then we, uh, you know, we, you know, these are the results we got. This is the output from the, from the testing or whatever. And, uh, you know, given that we have that, now we're going to either discuss or conclude. Usually discuss is probably a little bit more uh, safer thing to do. But we'll discuss the results, you know. And we'll discuss them now that we've talked already and set up about what the overall picture is and what we are, where we are in that context. And so... My thinking is, okay, well, the method section sounds like, mm, I did this little dropper here, and I did that little dropper there, and then uh, I'm going to tell you what these things mean all of a sudden. That becomes philosophy, um, I suppose, uh, you know. Um, but in general, I, I still think you can kind of just say, well, that whole data collection mechanism, uh, you know, it it has philosophical things, metaphysical things kind of getting plugged into it, but the whole thing itself, I would be willing, I'd be willing to say, okay, that whole thing is the science part. Um, and then, you know, then I want to say, okay, well, okay. So is, is when you're talking, when the, as I described the introduction, is that philosophy or is that just someone writing? <laughs> and then, you know what I mean? And then, uh, you know, just, is that just, or is that history? you know, or something different. And then, um, and then the results, uh, talking about the results, is that philosophy? I guess that might be sort of philosophy. I'm not quite sure. And then of course the discussion, that seems like it might be more like philosophy because it's, I always got that when, whenever I do the discussion section of something I was writing, whoever was reviewing it would be like, get a little philosophical. And I'm like, I guess that's philosophy then. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, what, what part is the philosophy, you know, in terms of say results section? What was the one in between methods and results? No, there, it was results. There isn't one. Yeah, there isn't one. Okay. So, I mean, there could be, I suppose. I mean, I just, first of all, none of them are anything but we'll get to that in a minute. Second of all, I'll just, you know, just to play along, the introduction is probably philosophical or has philosophical elements. The methods section is probably most often scientific, though I would want to stress that methodology is philosophical enterprise. Figuring out what methods you ought to use and selecting what methods you use and all that kind of stuff, I think that's pretty philosophical. But describing what methods were used sounds pretty scientific because that's just like giving your... Op it's stating your operational definitions, basically. So decision-making is philosophical in the context of trying to figure out the best methodology? Is that what you mean? Under Yeah, under this uh, toy... <laughs> definition of what these things are 
science is only, it's going to be very narrow and specific. And so most or all of the decision-making parts I would be placing in the philosophy tent. And so then the results section probably should be mostly scientific and that would be legitimate to critique the student for being... Well, you're getting too philosophical here. You're supposed to just be stating the science at this point. You told me what procedures you were going to engage in. Now tell me what you arrived at when you engaged in those procedures in as neutral a framework as possible, which is typically what we call mathematics. It's our best example of a neutral framework, right? Another big claim, you know, but we'll just keep on going. And then the discussion part would be mostly philosophy again. So that I would say in the, you know, this is, of course, oversimplifying, that it would be philosophy at the beginning and end, bookending your data-gathering science in the middle. If, funny enough, if data collection, measurement, uh, you know, uh, the the operational or executing a, an experimental design, if that is, say, science, and that's the, you know, that's what science is, and then if uh, it, the analysis you do of the data that you've collected Let's say that's oftentimes in science uh, papers, you know, that would be what we call statistics. Oddly enough, I think, and I'm kind of be making, talk about big claims. I kind of think that scientists tend to be better at philosophy of statistics, or at least they care more seems about the philosophy of statistics than they do about the philosophy of science um maybe it's that because they are doing science or whatever that they you know and they do that most frequently perhaps or that's the greatest amount of time they spend um it's just literally dropping from an eyedropper or some liquid in a beaker or whatever you how have you described that uh, event an abstract possible event because they do that maybe a lot of the time um <laughs> and i don't know if they do that a lot of the time they just do that a lot of the time on getty images under science <laughs> no but i mean like they, yeah. there's a lot of bunsen burners and eye droppers no but i mean I like know. because they're doing the actions of data collecting when you know a lot of you know like for instance you like you know it's one of the things i remember this one data analyst said to me was that you know, in his experience, most of the work, like 80% of the work, is just collecting the data and getting it uh, um, the way you want it, you know. And I would agree with that. That's my experience. Just like, you know, collecting, getting it in a way, in a formatting in a way that you you know you'll be able to then analyze it. And then the analyzing is just like, whoop, it's really fast. But... Um, Anyway, if that's the case, then it, maybe that's why scientists aren't really good at science, the philosophy of science, is because they do it. They don't, you know, they don't sit there and think a whole lot about it. They're just constantly doing it. 
You know, it's a doer's thing, not a, not a thinker's thing, perhaps, perhaps. And that the analysis part is, you know, kind of the reward for all that hard work where you feel like it's never going to end. And you, you know, you just, you know, it's, it's the misery of the scientist is to do science because <laughs> it's like, you're just doing it all the time. Um, and then when you get to finally do this analysis, it's like, oh yeah, like it, you get to cha-ching the thing, you know? Um, and so they really, I think scientists love to preach about statistics to each other. They love it. And everyone's a nimrod at statistics, but me, <laughs> you know, and they're just really into the philosophy of statistics, why we do this and why this, not that, you know, and all but that that's, kind of shit. They seem within better a, that. Within a given wall of fog though, right? That's just a specific times based pattern or habit, but it hasn't been around very long. Right? Or would you say it has? I think that statistics is the one thing that there is no wall of fog on with scientists. It goes Ooh. all the way back. Yeah. I mean, think what? about it. Think about it. Bayesian statistics is huge. We love Bayesian statistics. But we still also have R.A. Fisher. And, you know, uh, and then the other thing is the meta-analysis stuff with Cohen. And I can't remember the other guys. Um, but then, of course, uh, Pierce... There's another one, and these guys all studied correlation, and what do fucking scientists have to deal with all the time? Correlation does not causation. You know, oh my god, yeah, uh, fucking. It's <laughs> the only. I think it's one of the areas where they don't have that wall of fog, and they're really they're quote unquote good at philosophy of statistics. I think, or at least they it, not they're but good. When, they they when care is about. It. Bayes is like 1800s and earlier than that. Okay, well, that's pretty good, but, you know, well, it's still... They didn't really have... recent Oh, also, like, calculus, that's the other one. I mean, it's not statistics necessarily, but, you know, that's Leibniz and Newton, and those, you know, calculus is huge in science, you know. All that kind of stuff. Scientists are really good at paying attention and caring about a lot. Um, But, you know... Yeah, the, the the rolling wall of fog is with the science stuff, I guess. I don't know. Maybe not. We're going to have to do another episode or episodes about this claim, though, right? Mm. Uh, that's funny, because both statistics and calculus are bullshit. <laughs> wow. In the sense that um, calculus is about the study of infinities, and I don't think it is ever legitimate to make claims about actual infinities. It's totally story stuff. It's like unicorns and leprechauns and whatever. Of course, it works, and it's an approximation, and it allows us to shoot the moon and build skyscrapers and blah, blah, blah. But one, a, hu a finite, limited, ignorant human being ought never make claims about infinity and calculus does that in almost every equation right and st and statistics is it's a to me again it's totally very useful and wonderful and it's got is there are many good things about it but it isn't it's very essentialist in at basis right because what is included and excluded from your various classes 
that you're comparing the prevalences against each other. You know, and um <laughs> That's Leave that one in. That's a, I will. I will. Um yeah, I mean, st- statisticians or statistics, one is always trying to include as many things as possible. You can't include everything, and so you'll always be somewhat biased, I suppose. Uh, right. You, you've got all the indu- problems of induction that come in as soon as you're doing this, and the black swans and the ravens and the uh, caterus parabuses and all the good stuff. Yeah. So that... I'm not hostile to calculus or statistics. I just want to stress when someone says those are some of or the most important aspects and longest lasting habits of science, of what we call science, those are also both not supportive of dogmatic truth functional reality claims which many science oriented people want to make often <laughs> well they should stop that but there's there remember we're, it's just gener- it's, you know we're one funeral at a time you know generation to generation um i think there's that sort of like they are finite beings they're going to make Bad claims like that, I guess. And they, they, not all of them. Anyway. Um, so, one of the things about I calculus. Took you off the rails. No, yeah, no, get no. back on the all rails. All right, back on the rails. <laughs> um, I think the burp probably helped take us even further off the rails. So, um, I would say that there, yeah, you can have infinity and all that uh, in calculus, um, but you can also have the sort of the. In, infinitesimal stuff too where you're just trying to get closer yeah, and closer to zero yeah so it's sort thing. of the same thing yeah um where you just have this like indefinite ever um and yet in science which you're always trying to or science in calculus one of the big things that you often try and do is take the limit to something and infinity is limitless and blah, blah, blah. um whatever so there was that little Thing I wanted to point out, uh, and then um, about statistics, I guess I already addressed that one. It's just like, yeah, you know, who who can claim, you know, anything? Anyway, something you you'd made some big claim, and I was like, what? <laughs> who would do that? <laughs> anyway, um, well, you gotta provoke once in a while. That's right. So okay, but hold on. You wanted to get radical, and you've been poking it here and there. You've been like, bing, you've been throwing it in this whole night. Just like, uh, there is no this. There is no that. I'm radical. My name's Harlan. Go ahead. <laughs> Do it. Oh, wait. No, no. Hold on. Harlan. You are a philosopher. Go. No, I'm not. Yeah. Prove it. Prove it. I mean, what do you mean when you say that? And then what's your argument that I am? I mean, so what I'm saying ought not be surprising to our 3.3 and a half five <laughs> loyal listeners 
as a general semanticist, as a skeptic, as an anti-essentialist, as an everything that I stand for, there is no such thing as philosophy or science or a philosopher or a scientist. These are all just large, highly abstract category words that we can employ from time to time when we find it fun or useful for a given purpose, but that I would never be able to get my chimp up. I would never get involved. I would never get emotional about a debate about whether or not something was or was not science, which a lot of people apparently can. Or, you know, uh, the demarcation problem right, as uh, Popper or whoever called it. Um, wh- how, what is, how does something be science? Or the definition, the distinction between science and pseudoscience, or between philosophy and sophistry, or any of these foolish, arbitrary distinctions that people make and get in fights about. I can't care about any of that, because to me... None of this stuff is or isn't any of these terms. There's no fact of the matter. These are just, uh, you know, we're playing the game. These are all human social constructions that we, for benefit or detriment, can choose to apply or not apply. So... All right, how do I say this? Because I don't want to say there are bookstores. <laughs> but let's say there are bookstores. Uh, oh. If we accept into <laughs> our ontology bookstores. But not this other stuff. And customers. Right, not these other. These are <laughs> more respectable ontological positives. Are we doing statistics? I, What's going on? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> no. I would. It's easier for me to accept into my ontology things like bookstores and customers and owners and genres and books and whatever. That Well, not necessarily genres. I was going to say. And individual books than it is to accept things like philosophy and science. Those are kind of like genres. And what a genre is, to me, in in essence... I don't believe in essence either. Uh-oh. God damn it! Uh, <laughs> is a way to make it more convenient for your customer to make a satisfying transaction like the point the reason this bookstore is here one of the one of the reasons that most bookstores are where they are is profit motive at least in America 2018 and so somebody walks through the door and they're interested in and there are tendencies in your customers well i kind of like in general, purchasing books that are about ideas that are written by people who are very interested in Aristotelian definitions or something. Oh, so maybe it would be, maybe it would behoove the owner of the bookstore to locate books that have those tendencies and patterns of content onto the same shelf, so that when your customer is perusing and browsing. They might seek out one book, 
but then see on a nearby shelf something else that interested them and purchase more, and therefore the goddamn capitalist has done a better job. Nice. So that's the useful, or that's as good as you're going to get, in my opinion, to what philosophy is. It's those books that are put on the same shelf, or those individuals who are employed in the same department under the same chair, or who are published in this journal or whatever. It's these other social institutional things that have other raison d'etres than reflecting reality. There's Nothing is or isn't philosophy. Our society classifies them that way for other reasons. Go! So would you say, or would you agree, that I'm correct in summarizing you in that science and philosophy are different genres of inquiry? Maybe. It depends on how you define them. (laughs) That would be a mode of definition that I would probably prefer to some others if we do like a modes of inquiry style definition. Mm-hmm. But the ones that, that, what I was just stressing isn't really about modes of inquiry because it's instead about modes of locating books or modes of arranging professionals or all of these other things that have... Well, I wasn't saying modes. I was saying genres. So, you know the way you are seemingly using genre. Um, <clears throat> so it's like, oh, you want to you wanna buy some books about people that collect data? You know, <laughs> we have this thing we call science. And go over that, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like uh, that, like it just sort of, this is a genre. And these people have inquiries about X, Y, and Z, and this is how they go about doing it. And then, you, oh, you want to know about, you know, some futile exercise and learning the details about something no one cares about let's go to this philosophy (laughs) that's called philosophy (laughs) yes you know i mean like that's kind of what i was trying to like this is how these people inquire about it or you know you want to see some annoying questions philosophy no um that's kind of what i was trying to ask like would you say that's kind of how it is like these are genres of inquisitional dispositions or activities or something like that? Maybe not. Maybe not, folks. Um, I don't see the... I don't... I'm probably... Fail to see... Misunderstanding you. You fail I don't to see the humor. No. Always. <laughs> All right, what? I think there's a difference there because but i'm just this is probably just adding in an unnecessary dimension Mm, philosophers you know yeah (laughs) i'm not trusting the bookstore owner to classify things in a way that accurately reflects the the inquirers the authors Mm, i I would agree with you on that I don't okay, think that's they're very why good I was hesitating to buy into what you were saying. No, I get it. I get it. I'm not. I'm, yeah. I, I was just using that as an analogy. Although maybe you were being literal. <laughs> oh man, so many ways to use that word in that moment. Uh, well, maybe just these two ways, but whatever. <laughs> uh, um, 
You know, like that was kind of how I was thinking. I love the idea of genre. I just well, it hasn't I, landed you just yet. Take <laughs> the genre idea, or you know, two art types, and you get a given book or movie or song or something. You say, "Well, is this a horror movie, or is it a thriller, or is it a drama, or is it a comedy?" Cabin in the Woods, or whatever. What kind of movie is this? There can be debates about all of that. And in part, I'm saying it's because there is no answer to that question. There might be various reasons or defenses or arguments for classifying it in the way that any individual chooses to classify it, but there's no right answer. There's no resolution to that debate. Because... No work of art is or is not pornography. Or whatever you want to say. Well, is it erotica? Is it just merely a dramatic piece that has some sex scenes in it? Whatever. Oh, no, it's, oh, that's porn. Well, go ahead and debate that all day long. Justice Black or whoever came up with that fucking, I know it when I see it, whatever. Uh, Potter Stewart was that. Um, but there's just, there's no answer to these questions. And I think there's no answer to the question, is this article, is this work, is this individual a philosopher or a scientist? There may be general tendencies in their behavior that we could choose to categorize in one way or another, and then we define our category, and then we say, well, I call Feynman a scientist, because even though he wrote uh, books like Surely You're Joking, he also wrote and published a bunch of articles in X, Y, and Z journals about this and that, and he knew his stuff, so sometimes he was more philosophical than others, but in general, he did a whole lot of laboratory work and writing down in math, and that's what I mean by science, so I'm going to call him a scientist. But that there's no... This is all just for fun and profit and simplification, and there's just... There's no fact of the matter about any of it. So, can we take out the whole a scientist and philosopher thing (laughs) in our description of ourselves? Well, maybe. I mean, the point of it, I guess, was... Again, cynically and stupidly, because I don't know how to do it, but just branding, I figure that sounds good to a certain segment of an audience, that they're like, oh, yeah. Because I, in my impression, most 2018 Earthlings do have those two categories. They find them both intellectually interesting, and they're curious about them. They see them as distinct, and they might want to hear those two genres interact with each other. Can you hear it, people? Can you hear it? But, so, I mean, there's that. But then there's also what often is evinced in your and my, who are just both individual human apes that aren't really (laughs) philosophers. There are patterns that happen, like what happened at the very beginning of this one, where we took up the question, what is a thought experiment, and came up with, I think, distinct answers that were distinct, 
in an interesting way. And that there's something to be gained from that, even though I don't think it is a true statement about the universe that Harland is a philosopher and Ryan is a scientist. It's still a useful description because it indicates a tendency in the way that we approach problems, questions, topics, ideas, and that we often come at them from differing perspectives, but yet we get along so well and have a camaraderie that's just really <laughs> worth listening to. We go, oh, these two are really fun. It's classic. Oh, man. Okay, sure. So we get to... We get to uh... Yeah, I mean, I guess the the quotes be like uh, quote unquote scientists. Now we're literally quoting ourselves because you know from this episode. Feel me? We are so quotable. <laughs> um. All right, that sounds good. Uh, I don't know. I guess I don't like. This is one of the like. Sometimes when you get radical, I I'm just like yeah. Like I feel like you know, it, yeah, it makes sense, and I'm like, sure, okay, you know, I can go with that, I can ride that wave, and then I, I don't know, it doesn't get my chimp up, maybe because I know you now at this point, and I can't say that I have a good reason to <clears throat> argue against it, but then now that I'm kind of <laughs> apathetic to the whole thing, I'm like, someone we know, I'm like, it's trivial, you know. <laughs> Sorry. You're welcome. That's the third you're welcome. How many you're welcomes do I get in an episode? Well, that since that one ingratiates me, I'll take as many you're welcomes as you want. Okay. Uh, as long as you don't ever thank me for anything, which of course you don't. <laughs> no. But can I <laughs> can there be an infinite number of welcomes? You're welcomes, huh? Huh? Hmm? Of course not. Will, you know that. Yeah. Well, you said as many as I want, and I want them an infinite number. No, you don't. You're incapable of wanting an infinite anything. Ooh, nice. <laughs> you just don't know what your own wants are. You don't know what you want. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how this is melting down. <laughs> you don't know what you want. I'm skeptical of even myself knowing that you don't know what you want. Well, I'm skeptical. Yeah. So who knows? Um. Yeah. Okay. What What are we doing here? I don't have anything. Else. I don't know. There's so many things throughout the middle that I put on the queue that I wanted to say, but now <laughs> make no sense, and many have been forgotten and whatever. Oh, that's good. That's good. There's a lot of there's a lot of meat on these bones. There is. Uh. We can have like. I mean, oh, we didn't. This. Let's see. Yeah. I mean, any of the things that I want to say, I'm like, yeah, but they're just, they're arbitrary now. They don't fit. We're not on a thread. No, we're not on a thread now. We need to start a new thread. And it's kind of hard to start a new thread when we finish here with you being radical. You know, when Harlan puts on his radical hat. Or really, what it is, you take off the whole facade, and it's just radical. Yeah. <laughs> right, I was just playing along for an hour and a half. So, like, all right, you want to do this? I'll put, I'll play that game. Uh, yeah. So, uh, 
I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, what did you want to? I mean, is it even worth bringing up those arbitrary things, or is it really not? And we should have like hit stop recording a, a while ago or something. I know you love two hours. Holy fucking shit, you love two. Yeah, hours. Yeah, but we. Yeah, I'm trying to get get over that. So I guess not. I even have some ideas, and they're right here, but I'm not going to do them. We'll make a new episode about them. Ooh, okay. Sounds I good. mean, philosophy of science is fun and good, and I there are many names that didn't get said tonight that will be. You want to just say them all right now? Just like, name, name, name. <laughs> no. Are you sure? All right. Yes. All right. All right. Well. This was fun and different anyways. Was this fun and different? I don't even know anymore. Every time we do a di- where I'm like, we're like climate change, general semantics. Like, it's like, what? So they're all like, none of them are super the same. I mean, maybe some of them, anyway, whatever. Ta-ta, y'all.